the world's not going to heal if we only insist that we're right, the others are wrong, and we don't have some curiosity and respect for each other. And that, that's what underlies us, is really about how do we treat each other as human beings. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Rob Fersh, who's worked hard on the extremely important matter of bridging policy divides in this country. Rob is founder and former head of the Convergence Center for Policy Resolution. He's now their senior advisor. Convergence convenes people and groups with divergent views to build trust, identify solutions, and form alliances for action on critical national issues. Before his bridging work, Rob worked in the Congress, the administration, had a national nonprofit, especially on issues of poverty. We had a good conversation about his career and about our polarized politics. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Rob Fersh at Convergence. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Rob. Hello, Nathaniel. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? A uh, quick autobiography? <laughs> I think if you're giving a biography of yourself, it's probably an autobiography. Good point. I'm Rob Fersh. I'm currently the founder and senior advisor for a group called Convergence Center for Policy Resolution. I've spent um, now 45 years on the front lines of national policy working in Washington, D.C., working for three congressional committees and in the nonprofit world. And most of the last 25 years has been spent on trying to get people to bridge their differences across divides on issues of national consequence. Have you succeeded? Have we, uh, as a country, <laughs> been able to work easily across the divides now? Yeah, I think, frankly, I, I'm glad to just take this victory lap through this podcast because things are resolved and Lambs are lying down with lions, and you know my work is done here. It is actually a really good time to talk about such matters because we are struggling uh, as a country. Some of the lines of division are getting deeper, and even within the Democratic Party, we're having trouble coming to agreement on major legislation. But certainly between the two parties, it's a mess, and it threatens to become more so than any time in our history since maybe the Civil War if, if we don't watch it. What I try to do is kind of acquaint myself with people's careers a little bit before we get into the current fight. Can you talk a little bit about where you grew up and your educational path and sort of how you got interested in politics? Yeah, sure. Thank you for that. So I was born at an early age in Poughkeepsie, <laughs> New York. Um, and it was, you know, 
fairly modest upbringing. My dad was a teacher and guidance counselor and then director of guidance. My mom was a dental hygienist. And I was raised in, a, I think, a politically aware household, although not terribly so when you live in Poughkeepsie, New York. It was a great place to grow up. And uh, I was also raised at a synagogue where we had a rabbi who very much inspired a whole generation of us to want to take on the task of what people call tikkun olam, or repair of the world. This was a rabbi who escaped Germany in 38 or 39 and got out. His wife got out and they came and settled in the United States. And, you know, 25 years later, he's marching for civil rights and in the South. And he, he always inculcated in us an obligation to try to not only be truthful, but to make the world a better place, but to do it in a way that was also consistent with more fundamental values about how we treat each other. So that's very much about where I came from. I'm the middle child of three with sisters on either side. So people think it's logical that I would become a peacemaker. <laughs> I'm not so sure it was due to my sisters so much. It's just a natural inclination I have to be a mediator. I have a good friend who calls me the Henry Clay of the Krieger School Playgrounds. You know, Henry Clay was a great compromiser in Congress. So even, even that stuck for a while. So I ended up going to um, college in the late 60s, uh, 68 to 72, a very tumultuous time. I was at Cornell University. My freshman year, uh, we were in the national news because black students took over the student union. And then under threat of attack, they got guns and it became a big national news story. And it threw the campus into a weeks of deliberations about race and poverty. And between that and the Vietnam War, and at that point, there was suffering and starvation in Biafra. It was a highly, highly sensitized time. People you know, were into politics and policy and there was the Nixon-Humphrey election just after I went to college, and, and Richard Nixon was seen as a polarizing figure. So you couldn't help but be oriented to the events of the world. And so Cornell was a, a very a hot spot for you know lots of political discussion and dissent. I, I found myself torn between being naturally a progressive and the radicals, and I didn't have much taste for radicals. But of course, I was accused of being too nearly, you know, what's the word? Mealy-mouthed. Mealy-mouthed, um, which is probably an accurate description of me in many ways, because uh, I don't usually put forward a lot of opinions myself. Anyway, I, from there, I went to law school, and um, I found it not so much to my liking. I did study poverty law there, and I thought I was going to be a poverty attorney and ended up leaving law school to come to Washington and threw myself right into jobs that put me in the center of policy work on anti-poverty issues, the welfare system, and in particular, anti-hunger programs. And I um, ended up working for three congressional committees. Uh, I worked for a dear friend of mine who had, was a political appointee in the Carter administration, helping to run the federal agency that feeds people, that oversees nutrition programs like food stamps and WIC and school lunch. And then I worked on Capitol Hill in the House and Senate Ag Committees, Agriculture Committees, working on a bipartisan basis for policies I thought would help alleviate hunger in America. And from there, I got an invitation at age 35 to head what was considered the leading advocacy group on hunger in America. And I turned it down because I said the group was too strident for my tastes. And they said, well, if you're the CEO, you can change the tone. So I said, oh, OK, I'll do that job. So I did that for 12 years. And at the end of that, I felt like Washington and the country needed a place for people who are passionate about 
issues of the day or disagreed on how to solve them, but agreed there were problems, needed a new level of capacity to talk to each other and potentially find that they weren't as different as they thought, potentially find areas of common ground. And that's where my current work over the last 20 years got started, 23 years really to be a bridge builder and to try to find answers that were better than any one party had to begin with. So what was it that you saw in the politics when you're in the House and in the Senate and seeing people try to come to to new legislation and improve the country through that? What was it that you saw there in that process that made you think that change ought to take place and that made you want to, you know, do what you did later? Well, it's a bygone era, but I had the honor of working in the Senate side for Pat Leahy, who's still in the Senate, and working very closely with Bob Dole, who was a, at that point about to become, or either was the minority leader and then majority leader. On certain issues, people really found they had a lot to say to each other and they could work together. After I worked for Leahy, I went to work for Leon Panetta on the House side, and I was told, great, you're going to work for Leon Panetta, you'll love him, but you'll never be able to work with the ranking minority member, the ranking Republican on that committee, whose name was Bill Emerson from Missouri. And nothing was further from the truth. Bill Emerson was a compassionate, wonderful guy, cared about issues. He had a more of a conservative point of view about how to fight hunger, thought it should be more through food banks and private charity. But he and Leon and I planned field hearings around the country. We learned together and they every year for several years, including once I left Leon and went to head this uh, anti-hunger organization. We worked closely with Bill. And for me, it was like when people said the conservatives aren't compassionate, Bill Emerson, to me, embodied compassion. He just had a different view of how the world works. So this, to me, was the training ground for me to see that people who were politically different didn't necessarily disagree on goals. They just disagreed on how to get there. And there wasn't skillful means to have each side push each other's thinking to a higher level and to understand that no one side had all the answers. So that was really what my education was there that eventually led me to move toward the work of convergence. And so at this point, you're a lawyer and you've been right in the middle of big policy stuff. What was your path out into sort of bridge building? What was the first thing that you did? Well, the first thing I did was had an offer to enter the Clinton administration, a high level unravel. So I was about to become a sub-cabinet official in the Clinton administration in Department of Agriculture. And uh, for reasons not having to do with me, uh, the appointment didn't come through. And having led a nonprofit at that point for 10 or 11 years, I began to think about what I really wanted to do. And increasingly, I couldn't live with the cognitive dissonance of choosing my friends and even my own ideas simply based upon one ideology. I'd met too many people of great decency who actually wanted to solve problems and answers I didn't agree with, but they were genuine. And in many cases, they made points I'd never thought of before or broadened my own horizons. And so I took it upon myself starting late 1997 and early 1998 to try to form a new nonprofit And I uh, raised a little bit of money and assembled a bunch of people and worked out it a couple of years and basically fell on my face, never got it off the ground. But fortuitously, I had this idea and I was adopted, if you will, by an international conflict resolution group called Search for Common Ground. 
and they allowed me to try to incubate it from that base. And so I started again, starting in 2001, to build a capacity where people from different points of view could talk to each other and test this idea of dialogue leading to action. And luckily for me, within a couple of years, I ended up running two major projects that were proof of concept, one on healthcare coverage that a lot of people would say we wouldn't have an Affordable Care Act, but for the relationships built in that room, even if the ideas of the Affordable Care Act weren't exactly what we came up with. And I did a second project on U.S.-Muslim relations with very high-level people like Madeleine Albright and Dennis Ross on the left and former Republican members of Congress and the American Petroleum Institute. And we ended up doing a project. I was the co-director with a, a dear friend of mine, David Fairman, that helped influence what ultimately was um, the policies of the Obama administration in terms of how it related to the Muslim world. So I basically had this idea and tried to pursue it and try to figure out what the methodology would be to effectively bring people together. And over time began to have some success. And then in 2009, at the height of what was then the greatest recession in 70 years and having no money, started my own nonprofit. So I want to ask you about the, just a question or two about the nonprofit that you said fell on its face. There's a lot of celebration of, of people who build companies or nonprofits that work, but a lot of times they come after trying things that don't and learning from that experience. What do you think you did wrong the first time or was it just the idea or the time or nothing to do with you versus the second time where you were able to create something that endured? I think it was probably more circumstances. I mean, it was a new idea. I was putting it out. It was somewhat theoretical. And maybe the time wasn't right or people didn't understand it. And, you know, who was I to stand up a nonprofit in conflict resolution? I didn't have background, but I did surround myself with some wise people. And the co-chair of my well, board of that failed nonprofit basically said, you know what, Rob, we're trying, we got a really great idea. Maybe we need to just take a step back and let it reconstitute itself in a stronger form. And I think that what then happened was that when I moved to Search for Common Ground, to a wonderful organization, I actually tried to get federal legislation passed to create an entity as an arm of Congress to do this work. And, and that got through a congressional committee a couple of times, but didn't go. And then I then had an opportunity talking with um, a leader in the healthcare field who said to me that, you know, his lifelong wish or his, his wish for decades was to try to make sure Americans had health care coverage. And it turned out he had just taken a course at the Harvard Program of Negotiation and learned about, if you will, consensus building. And I pitched them this idea, why don't we do a project on health care coverage? And with his help, it got momentum. And I think what made it different for me was that on that project and the subsequent one on U.S. Muslim relations, we actually were able to pull together a project have a success, point to a track record, and build enough momentum that people began to have at least some confidence that my pie-in-the-sky ideas about bridge building actually could be uh, taken up in very practical uh, form and even have a, a big impact. That makes sense. So tell me about the, the founding of the Convergence Center for Policy Resolution. What did you set out to do, and how, how did it go at first? Well, I set out to set up an organization that would, above all, at that point, I was thinking legislative issues and we became broader beyond that, that would provide something that I didn't see anywhere else in Washington where people of different points of view who had the requisite 
knowledge, experience, and influence. And here you can define that all different ways. And it's very important to have all sorts of voices from you know, high-powered people to people with so-called lived experience. But the goal was to set up an entity where people whose differences stood in the way of progress could talk to each other. At that point, you know, even 12 years ago, people didn't see us as particularly unified. People disagreed. Business and labor disagreed and liberals and conservatives disagreed. But my goal was to set up a unique methodology, one in which relationships were at the center. There are other groups that do sort of bipartisan work, and I respect them and work with them and like them a lot. But they tend to be the organization figures out, well, where's the common ground? They assemble some big names. They have them meet once or twice, either approve or tweak what the staff comes up with, and then they lobby it. Our goal was to build deep relationships of trust, which we felt allowed this conversation to go deeper and actually involve people whose lives depended upon either fixing healthcare or incarceration or economic mobility and have them become the forces that came together to move the agendas forward. We were meant to be a leverage organization. We weren't going to be a leader in incarceration or healthcare or nutrition and wellness ourselves but it was more to shift the energy of the people fighting away from impugning each other's motives or going after each other to see actually they shared goals. And once you have people around a shared goal, then you can begin to have them talk about, are there some means we can agree on how to achieve that shared goal? And I would say on every project we've done over the last 12, 13 years now, uh, we've achieved some measure of finding important common ground. And in the process, and this is important to me, help lower the temperature. People talk to each other differently. There's radiating impacts over time that people relate to each other differently, even though they come from different philosophical perspectives. And I think some of the proof of that is that the Convergence Board has now includes several people who are on opposite sides in our dialogues and also includes people I ended up, when I was running a liberal group, I ended up debating them in the 90s. And now when I started Convergence, they and I had kept a relationship going and now they came in to support this notion that dialogue was really important across partisan lines. I can't think of how you would go about starting a project like that. Give me an example of one of them and like where the initiative came from. Did it come from you or your organization? What's the nitty gritty of how this happens? Well, it's a great question and there's no one cookie cutter. There are times now when people come to us already with some form groups and maybe a little money and that's a little easier if we think it meets our standards. But the first time I ever did is probably is the best story of all, which is, you know, literally I had this idea that we needed people to come together on big issues that people underneath it all weren't as different as they thought they were. That came out of my experience in the House and Senate. And one day I was at home and a leading liberal advocate for the poor in terms of healthcare happened to call my house for another reason. And he did say to me, you know, Rob, I'm frustrated. You know, I worked on the Clinton reform plan and didn't go through and other ideas are abound. But everyone's first choice is their own solution to the healthcare issue. At that point, more coverage than cost, but all that's intertwined. And their second choice is the status quo. They'd rather just stay with the status quo. They don't get their way. And so I said to him, what do you think about this idea? And as I mentioned, he just had a course to learn something about conflict resolution. He said, I love this idea. The first lesson is enroll somebody who's got credibility in the issue you want to work on. And this person was an amazing dynamo. 
He's not a wallflower. Some people wanted to come to his table that I was helping to constitute or leading the just to get them off of their backs. In other cases, they thought it was a good idea. They too were frustrated. And so with their help, you assemble maybe a small cadre of people, hopefully with political diversity and policy diversity, and build some relationships of trust with them and try to figure out, is there a shared goal we have? And in that case, it was nearly 50 million people without coverage and people all agreed that people ought to have coverage. They just disagreed on how to get there. And, and then we painted for them the possibility of having a new level of dialogue. And there are lots of stories around that I could tell you, but basically, you know, one of the main participants in that group who had spent at that point over 30 years at the Heritage Foundation, so political opposite to the liberal who was helping to organize this project, he called that dialogue in some ways the most transformative experience he'd ever had in Washington. He said, I knew these people, I debated them for years, I, but I didn't really know them. I didn't understand what made them tick. I didn't understand what's underneath their arguments. And when you go underneath positions, which is people normally just in Washington debate positions, what's right, what's wrong, and you talk about your values, your concerns, your fears, your interests, you can see you're not necessarily enemies, and then you can begin to search for ways, once you trust people, that their intentions are good, search for ways to accommodate each other's different points of view. So that's very much part of it. I do have one favorite story. I don't know if you have time for it right now. Well, actually, let, hold it. And let me ask you one question about that, because you talk about that particular issue and bridge building. But then when, when the Obama administration comes in and passes legislation in that area, there's not a lot of support from the other side. There's a long negotiation with the other side. There's what seemed to me to be incredible effort to make it bipartisan that that essentially fails even with the the purported most moderates and you end up with a with only one party passing major major legislation which is really not the model usually for what we've done in this country on big reform how do you like make the progress that you saw jibe with what you actually see uh, on the floor well, it is, it's right. At that point, we'd become even more polarized than when I worked for Congress. You know, I worked for Congress. You know, not every vote was measured. Not every social media post, you know, followed you everywhere or what you did. And people felt they were elected representatives asked to use their good judgment. And so they, I think, take more risks than what we have today. So, yes, it ended up being a party line vote despite efforts to make it bipartisan. And that is, unfortunately, the culture we're up against. However, there's lots of room yet uh, for people to work bipartisan on certain issues. Certainly, President Biden is making some headway there, not all people would want. And I think you have to be selective about issues you work on and how you bring people together. I'd also say that Convergence now is working directly with two entities in the House, helping to facilitate bipartisan cooperation and discussion. Tough sledding for sure, especially because the leadership of both parties tends to look for political advantage and wedge issues and may not always see political advantage to cooperating with the other side. But there are a lot of groups working on that. And we're part of the antidote to just straight politicalization of issues. The other thing I'd say is now we have embarked on a series of projects where the answers aren't necessarily legislative. So having people work at a state level or potentially have private companies or 
community colleges or labor unions work together in a way that's not legislative, find ways to leverage what they have. That's another doorway at a time of deep polarization. But I haven't given up on that. There's lots of people working to uh, fight polarization, fight polarization in Congress, have Congress be more responsive to the actual views of their constituents, not just adhere to ideology. People working on ranked choice voting and so on. I'm not taking a position on any of that, whether it's a good idea or not. I'm just saying people are worried about the polarization. Lots of groups are working on that. I'd also say in the meantime, people underestimate what direct communication and trust building can lead to in terms of having people become allies and fighting for uh, shared purposes. You were about to give another story, which I took to be about another project you did uh, early on, or what was that? Well, I, I, I have lots of stories, but I was going to go back to the healthcare. So here you have healthcare starting in 2004. Um, and then uh, President Bush got reelected and the group decided to stay at it for a couple of years. And, you know, one of the people in the room represented the American Medical Association, which historically, when it came to health reform, wasn't seen as a particularly progressive or constructive voice. I mean, we don't pull together people to just come up with progressive solutions. We come out with, we look for the win-win. But my story is that she, uh, this woman who's wonderful and was an economist, and we've since lost her to cancer. She was an economist. She had her tables. She had her maps. She explained to everybody why the AMA had thought this through and why their positions were really just pretty airtight and the way to go to reform the healthcare system. And so she was pretty outspoken the first few meetings, yeah, but in a nice way. We had 12 meetings in two years, 12 two-day meetings. I noticed she was getting quieter and quieter throughout the process. And at the 11th meeting, we actually cut the deal on how to cover as many people as quickly as possible, a bunch of principles and ideas we had. And it was the architecture of the Affordable Care Act that we pretty much invented there, even though the Affordable Care Act went a little further than what we recommended, and we lost some people there. I mean, some people decided not to support it, and I, I totally trust and respect that. But the 11th meeting, when we cut the deal, I'm just innocently having lunch, and this woman comes up to me and says, Rob, you have ruined my life. I said, look, I got four kids. I hear that all the time. What's your particular excuse? <laughs> and she says, well, when I came here, I thought I had all the answers. I had all my charts and tables. And now I'm sitting in this room with all these brilliant people, different perspectives, making points I never thought of and bringing things I couldn't take into account given my current perch. And she literally said, I can't see the world the way I used to. And to me, that's what you're trying to do in my processes, the things I work on. It's not so much, I, I got to win someone over to my point of view. If you can open up people to the fact that they only have a part of the puzzle or part of the truth, you can find avenues to find areas to agree on, even if you continue to disagree. So to me, that's what this is about. It's about opening your perspective, seeing each other through each other, you know, the eyes of the other person. And your heart opens up a little bit, and it, I think, allows you to potentially consider their point of view without having to fight it every time. And, and then you, you obviously have to, you know, I'm not, we don't ask anyone to relinquish any important beliefs or principles they live by. But within that, there's lots of room for people to work together. I have lots of stories of people who you never thought could work together, private prisons and formerly incarcerated people working on how to improve our prison systems and so on. It really is at this point, a proven uh, approach to getting people to work together across very strong differences. 
in a successful project, what happens in the room to bring people together? Is it magic? What actually takes place? Well, I think it's important to understand that people who participate in these processes don't become like totally unified and 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 see the world the same way and forever uh, have no conflict from the project we did, uh, I did on healthcare in, in 2004 to 2007. Turns out that one of the participants was a fierce advocate for the poor uh, in terms of healthcare costs and coverage. And every year he would put out a report in which he would list the 10 highest paid executives of the pharmaceutical industry, juxtapose their salaries against the cost of drugs for the average American and make the case that these people are fat cats. Well, as it turns out, we're in a dialogue room and a very senior official from a major pharmaceutical company is there. And it turns out this individual was a classy person who even at the beginning said, you know what, my company has interests here, but let's discuss what the policies are that will best cover Americans with healthcare. And I want to try to support that in any way I can. And he became kind of the dean of the room and he was very popular and very reasonable and wasn't just some cutthroat capitalist trying to make every buck. So we're in the middle of this process, and my friend uh, who's on the progressive side is about to issue his annual report attacking the pharmaceutical executives for all the money they make. And it turns out that the guy in the room is number six in the country in terms of his income. So my friend has this dilemma. Is my, my new buddy, do I attack him? Do I go away from my own tactics to make my work more effective? And the answer was, he didn't veer from his strategy, but instead he put out a report that year that was critical only of the top five earning <laughs> corporate executives. And his friend wasn't attacked and they kept the relationship intact. So that can happen. You, you know, your heart opens to somebody and maybe you begin to see what it might do to influence them. Yet he didn't, it didn't compromise or sacrifice this guy. He was hard hitting. Have a gift of the poor. And he felt that's the way he wants to do it. So I think that's the point. You don't relinquish your strategies, you don't relinquish your beliefs, but you can find large swaths of common ground and, and build some relationships in the process. Can you think of another example where people modulated their position? So there's another story I like to tell about the project we did on incarceration. And some of this, I wasn't present for all of it firsthand, but I've, I've got reliable sources. So we put together this table and it was quite controversial that we would include some people from private prisons. A lot of people suggest that private prisons be banned, and and the, the general sense of their critics is that they are profiteering at the expense of keeping more people in jail longer periods of time. And so, just before the first meeting of this group, I'm told that a another stakeholder in the group, who's an academic, came in and saw a name card for the private prison representative. I'm told he hid hid the name card as if maybe that guy will go away if I doesn't have a name card. <laughs> And there was tension about talking to people from private prisons. But the guy from private prisons did a pretty good job of um, saying that, you know, we're not interested in profiteering. At least he wasn't. And uh, he's pretty senior. Um, and that they'd be willing to go for policies to help people get out of jail earlier or thrive when they got out and not stay in jail. Just write the contracts we're on to do that. And he said, furthermore, we've... we've um, diversified our portfolio. So we make profit from re-entry programs once people go out. And so we're not only about keeping people in jail. Any event, it turns out that first day of the meeting, of course, we sat these two protagonists at dinner next to each other because we wanted them to get to know each other. We didn't know exactly to come out. And frankly, they almost 
turned their shoulders away from each other for most of the meal, but eventually they talked. And the academic who was critical, I think at least felt, well, this guy is reasonable. And the, the private prison guy said, well, if you're taking your daughter for a college visit down to Vanderbilt, why don't you come and tour our, our prison and, and meet our people and learn what we're really up to? And so he did. I don't know where he ultimately came out about private prisons. He may still oppose them, but at a minimum, the tensions went down. This person wasn't seen as some cardboard cutout stereotype of a profiteering guy. And the private prison guy, I thought, acquitted himself well. Uh, again, he may not speak for all private prisons, and there may be people who never want to see a private prison, but he was able to say, I want to work for these larger societal goals. And the largest societal goals are, for me, not to keep people in prison longer than they need to. And they, above all, if they're getting out, whether they've been a short time or a long time in prison, they ought to be able to thrive. And I, my company wants to buy into that. And so that, there was a really a nice coming together around the recommendations that we put out collectively on how to help people thrive upon leaving incarceration. So in the decade plus that you ran Convergence, how did things change? How did it change for the organization? Like, did, you know, how did it grow or, you know, ebb and flow? How did the types of things that you addressed change? How did your processes change? What was the kind of trajectory during that time? You know, it's going to be hard to characterize uh, fully. Uh, I would say first we struggled mightily. I had many sleepless nights, not knowing how to meet payroll. When I finally got $50,000 from somebody, I took a breath for a couple of months. Um, but eventually we had a couple of projects uh, get to critical mass, one on nutrition and wellness and a very dramatic first meeting. Um, luckily, we had representatives of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and uh she called the level of frankness and dialogue from the food industry and consumer advocates. She said it was unparalleled in her career to see that level of dialogue. And she said, I really want to help you create a project of meeting. And we got the funding we needed. Every nonprofit needs funding in order to do it. Similarly, we had a very passionate staff member take on the issue of K through 12 education. Luckily, we had a connection to Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers. Uh, we had a couple people go into her and she couldn't believe these people were talking to each other to begin with. And she came in and other big players came in and we ended up getting a project together on K through 12. And we were smart enough to put some foundations at the table to help fund it. But they also were experts. So we had a couple of early successes on projects that of note. But there have been a lot of bumps since then. Education decided not to do anything about public policy. It was going to be ideas that would have to come from the grassroots up. And eventually we spun off a nonprofit. It still has on its board representatives of charter schools and labor unions, teachers unions, talking to each other about this vision they came up with that really suits the 21st century more than the factory model of the 20th century, where every kid of the same age learns the same thing at the same time at the same place. And so they're taking these ideas out into the world. So I would say we had a pretty good trajectory and we began to grow, and especially with education, uh, drawing in resources and other projects getting off the ground. We hit, I think, a really nice period of time, probably our years three, four, five, six. But as we moved toward 2016, the country increasingly divided. We found a lot of funders were focused on the polarization. And once President Trump was elected, a lot of funders were very much preoccupied with voting and 
other democracy concerns and I think and skeptical that dialogue could occur. And so we had we had a little bit of a trough uh, between that and the economy of uh, raising the money. And then I was smart enough to get out of Dodge for it to have a very talented new leader come in as I actually approached my 70th birthday. Uh, so it worked out and now organization is very much on the rise. Some of that is because we got past the election. Some is because we have great leadership and a great board. But like any nonprofit, it's fragile. The funding, you know, if a project goes sour and you get a bad newspaper article, it can hurt you. And the ability to get publicity for our work is difficult. And furthermore, people don't tend to fund good process. They tend to fund groups that agree with their solutions to begin with. And Convergence would be asked, well, how is this going to come out? And can we fund the solutions already? I said, no, because we don't know. We're an honest broker. We're going to put conservatives and liberals in the room, businesses and laborers in the room, and we're going to, whatever they come up with is what we're going to follow. As long as they reach consensus, that's going to be the ideas that are going to go out into the world. And uh, and that's that's not easy to attract funding for that when they don't know what the answers are going to be. When you're the founder of an organization and you shape it uh, as much as one does, uh, it can be hard to leave. It can be hard to pass the baton to somebody else. It can be hard to get out of the way. And these are all well-known things about nonprofits and, and I think for-profits also. What has that transition experience been like for you and maybe for uh, your successor? Well, I can't speak for David Eisner, who's my very able successor, but I think it's been phenomenal um, and very lucky. I'd be lucky that David's the person he is and I've tried to be gracious. I mean, I think he's not threatened by me hanging around, which is good. It's a sign of how strong and smart he is. But my view was that I should back away in, in a way of um, not trying to control things. But I'm there more as to keep convergence within what I think are the riverbanks or the guiding principles of neutrality and 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 being trusted by all sides and being smart about picking issues. And David's expanding the work now in a very creative way. And I think we're playing off each other beautifully. He used me as a ballast and an advisor. And I try to walk the line between um, being supportive and speaking up when I need to. And I think something deep and troubling is at stake. Uh, but otherwise to help, you know, actually transfer and keep with all the relationships I built over these last 12 years, which I cherish. I have, uh, well, that's what I love. I love to talk to people and understand them and bring them in for common purpose. And I'm being used as an ambassador now. I'm not running anything. I'm not supervising anybody. I think that takes me out of a way of being in conflict with other people as much as I can. I am still on the board and I expect I'll remain for an indefinite period, but one never knows. Um, but I am just pleased, and, and I know not everyone is in a circumstance where they can do this. Uh, not everyone's just fortunate to get a successor like I did, who seems to appreciate what I bring and wants to hear more and doesn't worry about dissent. And I do hear horror stories of other transitions, and uh, you just never know. But I thought it was a mistake not to still take advantage of what I know, and I wanted to still contribute that, but in as graceful a way as I could. If you listen just today to what Trump is saying. He's saying that our democracy won't survive the rule by the Democrats, that they're bent on destroying the country. And if you listen to the rhetoric on our side, we're talking about the risks of him coming back in pretty apocalyptic terms. And I'm 
pretty terrified, frankly, that he has a decent chance to come back. And, and I would probably use language like that myself uh, about him. How can we use maybe the principles that you teach or help people with to solve this gigantic problem we have with the Republican Party following one guy who uses language like that and who recently, if you believe our version of it, tried to overthrow uh, an election with a demonstration at the Capitol to stop the vote counting. Yeah. So let me just say, I mean, you've used the word our, and I people can look at my history. I did work for Democrats and on a personal level. Oh, maybe I'm speaking for myself. And lean that way. But so I don't, I'm not going to speak on behalf of Convergence in any way that says it's our side or not our side. I, I think this is a, a dilemma that I'm, you know, it's sort of above my pay grade to figure out. I do think he's an unusual figure and an unusually polarizing figure and uh, someone whose attachment to truth is less than any political figure I've ever seen in my lifetime. So that's an ingredient for, you know, he will, in my view, try anything to win. On the other hand, there are lots of people of great decency who believe what he has to say. There are people in state houses passing laws that you might view as voter suppression, and they really think they're helping save democracy, and people could debate that. Uh, So we have to honor and respect the fact that not everybody is exactly like Donald Trump, who I think brings his own particular qualities and ability to needle people like few others. But, you know, he got over 70 million votes. And so I think demonizing people who disagree with you politically is a terrible mistake and sells people short. All I can say is this, and I wish I had something more sophisticated than this, but People have forever disagreed and disagreed vehemently on so many things. And at times we've had a civil war in this country. And I will tell you that, you know, I have had experience where people who literally didn't think they could even sit at a table or talk to each other have been brought into settings where they can hear each other and talk to each other. And maybe they don't even reach agreement, but at least the temperature goes down and they don't want to kill each other. I have a good friend who ran a project on abortion. I think it was called The Search for Common Ground on Life and Choice. And believe me, at people who thought abortion was murder and people who thought that failure to offer choice was tremendous infringement on personal liberty and, and choice. And these people, to a person, will say that it was remarkable dialogue. They were never going to reach agreement on whether women should have a right to choose. But they, they understood the moral underpinnings of each side. Their hearts softened to each other. They worked together on issues like teenage pregnancy prevention, foster care, and adoption. And they also got to the point where they could peacefully coexist, which I think is really important. So, you know, people weren't shooting up abortion clinics uh, as much because of some of the work going on there. So I would simply say, I, I think, what choice do you have? I think you have to find people. And I think some people are unreachable. I don't think Donald Trump is reachable. And he's got a cadre around him, perhaps not. And the same is true for true believers on the left. I've got friends on the left who are very upset at the people far left, <laughs> who they think are ideological and not practical. But I think it comes down at some point, people have to be skillfully convened and facilitated to have conversations and to try to find areas of shared values, shared interests, and hopefully some ideas that they can work on together. And if you don't have a shared goal, then it's very hard to work together. But I believe most people want the same things but disagree on how to get there. I wonder if like something like the compromise package that's working on our roads and bridges and infrastructure 
isn't somehow a bit of a result of a process like that. And you kind of get people together and they worked out a compromise, but then when they exit sort of the room of good feelings, then it's very hard to hold together. You now see some of the people who negotiated it, even thinking about not voting for it after they're exposed to the fury outside. Uh, how do you hold together the results of working towards convergence? Well, I think, to be honest, each time something like this is happening is a different political moment where the sh winds can shift and leaders can look for a different political advantage. If every year there's an election, every other year control of the House is up for grabs, then people will make a different calculus. All I can say, and I, again, I think there are people more sophisticated than I am about this, that I think you get people where they build trust and they create an alliance where they decide that working together and getting something done is more important than political advantage. Groups like No Labels are doing some remarkable work there, and they're actually backing it up in a way that I don't, which is they're putting money into people who work with them from left and right so they can fend off primary challenges. And that's part of their mode of power politics to try to have people be a little more courageous about their leadership. I think at some point, um, people have to recognize that real people have real issues in life. Our job is to make their lives better, not just to maintain political advantage. I do think some people think that their retaining political advantage will be in the long run better for everybody. And so they get bought into that. But I think you have to try to separate it out, get concrete, try to identify problems. Also, other groups are doing a great job documenting how constituents in their in districts actually where they come together. And there's usually a lot of agreement amongst real voters on, and bringing that to the attention of members and having them feel a little safer about taking some stands different from the leadership. All are ingredients to help people, if you will, in a representative democracy, make decisions that are for the, the good of everybody. You know, I had dinner a number of years ago uh, with Leon Panetta when he was just leaving uh, Department of Defense. He invited a bunch of his old staff people. And he looked at a couple of us and he said, you know, I don't get it. When I was in Congress, it's all about cutting deals and getting things done. What is with these people? And I'm thinking, Leon, you're Secretary of Defense. You should know better than I do about that. But yeah, the calculus about what's successful... These people, by the way, most members, if you read the polls, many members of Congress really hate their jobs, you know, the fundraising and the polarization, and they want out of it. So I see it as good people caught in bad systems. And I think the majority of people, from my experience, and we are working with bipartisan groups on the Hill, really do want something different. And they just, we haven't yet figured out the doorways out for them to actually allow some of these other more humanistic and relational instincts to take over. There's too many forces on the other side that have people drawn to the short-term political advantage as opposed to necessarily looking at longer term, what's good for the country. If you had a room of the progressives and moderates in the Democratic Party right now fighting about a $3.5 trillion package, clearly we are in the next couple of weeks going to either come out of this with something substantial or nothing at all, how would you like lead a discussion that might take us down the road to compromise rather than everybody walking away? Yeah, I don't know fully the answer because in my work, um, 
I don't always have to take in, into account what the day-to-day political realities are for people. Most of our work is with people who care about an issue and they figure out, okay, even if I'm, I'm at the Chamber of Commerce or at the AFL-CIO, we all agree that we don't have enough economic mobility and people, young people today are often don't make what their parents made and let's, let's do something about that. They take a look at the merits. What can they live with? What's good for business? What's good for labor? And they can come up with ideas and they may look at politics a bit. So the political overlay makes this very complicated. But I think the answer is simply, you know, I don't know for sure this would work, is I'd put them in the room and have them take a deep breath and take a step back and say, what do you want to get done? What's important to you? What are your values? What's enough to make a difference in people's lives? And see where it goes. I wouldn't come with a predisposition that has to be a smaller bill or a larger bill, it would be more like to get these people to talk through and hear each other and understand where their passions lie and hope that in the course of that, again, their hearts open, they begin to see avenues where they can be creative to find ways to meet the goals that they share. So I don't have any magical answers, but it's got to be skillful conversation where you get people to be as honest as they can about what their needs and wants are. And if some political calculation comes in, then it's really hard to stop that. But, you know, you can take the politics into account as well, as best you can. It reminds me, I, um, when I was starting Convergence, um, this is over 20 years ago, one of my advisors was uh, the former Middle East ambassador, Dennis Ross, if you know that name. Dennis Ross, very famous negotiator, yes. So we're in a meeting and, and uh, you know, I began to talk about what I hoped for the organization. It was still very generalized. And I said, yeah, I think it's got to be built on trust. And, you know, and he said, you know, Rob, that's exactly right. And he mentioned in a negotiation he was in a few years before where an Israeli actually made an offer that was very generous from the Israeli point of view. And the Palestinian negotiator said, I love this offer. But he then said to the Israeli, you're going to get cream politically. It's not going to fly. We, you know, I love that you made this offer, but we, let's 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 look at what might might actually work and be sustainable. I'm not just going to take it because I'm concerned for you that it's not going to work for you. So when you get to that level of trust, where you're looking out for each other and make sure each other's interests are met, and you're also looking for something durable over time, you know, not just looking for some quick fix that'll come undone. That's our goal: is to get answers that are broadly supportable. So they're not subject to the winds of fortune the next time an election goes the other way by three votes. That's our goal is to get something that's durable and wise and sustainable. Convergence is one of a fair number of organizations that are in the bridge building world in this country. Who else do you think is doing admirable work in that space? Well, there are a lot of groups, and I'm sure if I fail to mention someone, I'm going to feel bad about it. But uh, let me just make a couple of comments. First, there's, there's bridge building writ large. So there are people like Braver Angels doing great work, getting people in communities to talk to each other. There's a, the One America movement, which is getting congregations and a lot of people of faith to have more skill and how to deal with their own congregations and talk to people from congregations that tend to be their political opposites. Living Room Conversations, another group does a dialogue locally. There's a lot of that. Uh, that and it's growing. I, I was on a call this morning with someone said there's 350 bridging organizations today, where maybe seven years ago there was 25. I view us within a particular um, subcategory of bridging, which is problem solving in a bridging way. Not everybody does that. Very few groups do that. 
But some try to do that. The Bipartisan Policy Center does some remarkable work. The Aspen Institute, I mentioned no labels before. I think we're all in this together, each with our own methodologies about what appeals to us. And I think there's ample room for lots of us. It could be some could join forces and be more effective in the nonprofit world. And these are people, uh, groups founded by people who come from both staunch Democratic and Republican roots who are so fed up with the lack of civility that they want to do something about it. I'm heartened by the fact that people are motivated. We are still fighting the predominant culture. When you have a former president who stirs the pot like Donald Trump, you know, it's tough to go against that. But I hope we're building an infrastructure that over time will begin to tilt us to the point where a tipping point where civility and and dialogue and cooperation and understanding each other becomes more of the the primary uh, means by which we solve problems. That probably sounds a bit Pollyannish. It probably is, but I do think we're making headway and eventually we may well get to the point where that's much more widely accepted as a means to not only solve problems, but also have people live in peace with each other. When I hear you saying that, I think about a lot of people I know who probably disagree that we're in any way getting better, like that, that things aren't just worsening on a lot of these fronts. But also, if we look at other countries in history, sometimes countries turn around a huge conflict and take things back in a better direction and heal. So I, I wonder if you, if you have a sense of what what does it take, what convergence of things it takes to, to move people from getting more and more polarized to going the other direction? Is that a top-down thing from leaders? Is that an exhaustion with conflict? Is there a pattern to that? I think that's more a question for the sociologists and the you know, anthropologists and the political scientists than for me. I, so I, I want to say, first of all, I do think there's a cadre of groups starting to make headway, but but I want to agree with you that I think things are going to get worse before they get better. And I see a cauldron in the 22 elections, the 24 elections. So I don't want anyone to think um, that we're at a point where we've actually turned the ship around. But at least there's some entry points and there's some counterpoints to the predominant culture that are growing and people are getting strength. My offhand answer is it's got to be both, top down and bottom up. You know, average people who are people of faith, uh, ministers throughout the country, rabbis, imams, have to speak to what do the values of these religions speak to about how we treat each other and how do we maximize that. It's a, the golden rule is part of every major uh, religious culture I'm aware of. I'm not an expert on that. Um, so I think there has to be uh, some revulsion over the levels we're going to, how we treat each other. And so people of great decency need to be talking to each other about what it is that's at stake that's more important than maybe their short-term advantage. And not everyone's willing to give that up. But I, I find when you engage people and they agree on an overall goal, they will not just blindly be selfish about their own interests. They can hold on to their own interests, but also go to another gear to find ways to work together. So I don't have any simple answers. I do think leadership is really important. You think about what Mandela did in South Africa. Who would have ever thought, even if today it fails, he would have been able to achieve that revolution or Gandhi in India, or for that matter, the American Civil Rights Movement. The predominant culture of this country is so different about 
civil rights than it ever was, much as there's work to be done uh, as today's racial uh, injustices continue to rear their head. But I think we're light years ahead of where we were on race issues 40, 50 years ago, on women's issues, on gay rights, and so on. And I don't know what the magic formula is, but I, I do think some combination of enlightened leadership engagement with citizens, having them feel they have a stake, they have, they have some agency, they can do something about it, and appealing to people's basic human instincts. At some level, I really do think people are relieved not to hate each other and prefer to be in positive relationships. They just don't know how to get there. And that's part of where we come in, to put them in settings where they can begin to relate to each other differently and form uh, relationships that at a minimum are respectful and potentially productive. It's my guess that people like you who have an inclination towards bridge building and compromise and things like that are probably better listeners than the average person and more interested in that than necessarily. And you said earlier, you know, always giving your opinion, but you probably are also in the point in life where maybe there's a book in you or something to talk about the experiences. Do you think about putting together all your thoughts and and experience in in such a format? Yes, I, I do. And I have begun work on a book and you have to see what the market is. Uh, I don't want to write a book that no one wants to read. It's a lot of effort to put, in, out, put out a book. So that's why I do podcasts or write op-eds and so on to get my thoughts out. I think every book probably can be summarized in five pages anyway. But yes, I would like to uh, tell the stories and inspire people. And if things go right, and there may well be a book here about is more by a practitioner than a philosopher about my life experience, the people I've met. Most people are magnificent. Most people, you can, you can bring out their so-called better angels if they're put in right settings. It's not always true. I don't always agree with people. I have my own issues with people and family members. But I think you have to keep your eye on what the North Star is. And so, yeah, I, I would love to Write something that would move people, have them feel, give them hope and be inspired by it and maybe learn something about how to do it. Uh, no one book can do that alone, but I, I hope that I and others who've had similar experiences will become part of a crescendo of other voices that give people hope. People have given up. They don't see there's a way out and they're so angry with each other. Uh, and they overgeneralize about each other left and right, about who they are, what they believe, how they want the world to be. I do think that we need more voices like that in this time. That's one of the reasons I have people on this show who are interested in being able to see good in both sides because it does exist. And uh, I appreciate the time you took today to talk to me. Is there anything else you want to say? Just thank you to you for a very interesting interview and just for the angles you took that were, you know, even more sort of personal and just philosophical. I enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate your inclination to try to bring these voices out. I don't think I have anything to add other than I, I just feel really strongly at this point in my life where at once I was just an advocate for one side, that the world's not going to heal if we only insist that we're right, the others are wrong, and we don't have some curiosity and respect for each other. And that, that's what underlies us is really about how do we treat each other as human beings. Thanks much, Rob. That was Rob Fersh. Rob is at convergencepolicy.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com 
or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.